You may have uh, grown up, as I did, in watching broadcast television prior to cable, and you might have watched PBS when you were younger, and you might remember and be well aware of Carl Sagan's unique voice. And Carl Sagan had a number of programs, but his tagline was, the cosmos is all that is, all that was, and all that will ever be. And Sagan was way ahead of his time in what he was teaching and promoting that the cosmos, cosmology as it was viewed, was all there was. And we are but mere butterflies that exist in a moment of time, and we don't understand this grand cosmology that we're a part of. If you're not familiar with Sagan, you might be familiar with someone named George Lucas. Uh, George Lucas, uh, best known for his invention or recreation or adaptation of what he calls the force. And obviously, there's disputes about what he means by it. But one of the more popular attempts to explain the force is all-powerful integration of good and evil, the dark side of the force. It was probably popularized from the yin-yang, uh, from Tao Chi Chu, where you have a circle that has a line separating it, making it look like two paisleys. And it's typically black and white. Sometimes you'll see a version of it with a white dot in the black paisley and a black dot in the white paisley. And the idea behind uh, Tao Chi is that the interrelatedness of opposites are required. You have to have both good and evil forces to exist in the universe. The Tao is one. From the one come yin and yang. From the two, creative energy. From energy, 10,000 things. The form of all creation. All life embodies the yin and embraces the yang through their union, achieving harmony, and on and on it goes. So the idea of these contrasting elements, was it Sagan's cosmology? Was it the yin and yang? Is it the popularized Lucas, the dark side of the force or the light side of the force? In contrast to cosmological worldviews, John wrote in his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. For those of you who are Bible study uh, folks, uh, BSF, Precept, Community Bible Study, you may have done this where you take Genesis 1 and John 1 and you compare what are called the prologues, the beginnings of these two letters, of the, the Gospel of John, and compare and contrast with the beginning of Genesis. The, the light, the dark, the imagery is rich. John, as a Gospel writer, is the simplest of Greek language. When you learn New Testament Greek, you always start in John because it's so rewarding to easily translate because it's such easy grammar. It's such easy vocabulary. But not to be deceived, it's some of the most profoundly deep theology, even though the language is easy to master. In the beginning, light, life, darkness, creation. And so I want to make some observations at a high level about not only the prologue, the first five verses, but the first 13 verses of the Gospel of John as we think this Christmas about the light of the world. The light has come. The light and the life of Christ has come. Uh, first of all, let's make the observation in the first verse that Jesus is eternally existing. Jesus has always existed. Never was the time when Jesus was not. Never was a time when the Word was not. Jesus wasn't simply born on a 
contrived date called the 25th of December that we put on a calendar, and we celebrate his birthday on that date. Jesus has always existed. He has eternally existed. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The reference is to the Christ being there. Now, all things uh, hinge on his existence. Paul wrote in the letter to the Colossians about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. He didn't mean the first person ever born. He has primacy over all creation. So it is very accurate biblically to see Christ at creation. He existed before then, eternally existed, and he's at Genesis 1-1 when creation begins. If you had to write an article or a book or a dissertation on the beginning of the person of Christ, you are left with the impossible task. Theologians have tried for hundreds of years, thousands of years, to explain how Christ has eternally existed. There's a five-volume work by one theologian just on the origins of the person, the, the personal work of Christ and the origins of mankind as it pertains to his existence. John begins, at the beginning was the Word. Jesus Christ has always existed. Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man. The second thing to point out in this prologue is Jesus is the creator. He was at creation, but he is also the one who creates. If we can say never was a time when Jesus was not, I think we can also say never was a time when a thing existed that Jesus did not create. Now, we can look at substance, things that are made, a wood piece of furniture, a jet, a building, an air conditioning system. Obviously, Jesus did not create those things, but he created the elements in this globe, this world that we live in, the atmosphere that protects us, the water sources that nourish us, the food that grows from those things. Uh, man can create all kinds of things. Man can't create from nothing. Uh, even when man uh, clones an animal, 300-some attempts before the first sheep named Dolly lived, and she didn't live that long, uh, but you took other elements, you took recombinant DNA from other animals to put this in a Petri dish, metaphorically, in a Petri dish, to join existing elements to, quote, create life. Man didn't create life. He plays with biology and chemistry. He can't take a blank Petri dish and speak light in creation into that dish. He can do marvelous things. He can make airlines. He can make all sorts of engineering feats. He can make sound technology. He can even make sources that emanate light, but he's not made light. He simply uses what is at his disposal. Never was a thing that Jesus did not create. Now, in these first few verses, he introduces light and life. And the importance of these two is that this is, in him is life, and the life is found in this light. It's simple language, but its meaning is deep and profound. In chapter 11, 25, and 14, 6, Jesus will claim to be life. He says, I am life. In John 8, 12, he will say he is the light of the world, and several other times in the Gospel of John. Now, before creation language in the Old Testament, we have these two things existing. We have cosmology, the dark and the light are separating things, but it's only until God intervenes in that creation Listen to what we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord was moving over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So these two things, life and light, are setting out the beginning of the Gospel of John, the prologue. 
We could say life is man's most important holding. The thing that we cling to more than anything else in life is life. I was uh, talking to a gentleman in recent days, part of our church family, who's been through uh, three plus years of all kinds of medical uh, challenges. And um, they may have no more alternatives for him. He may be indeed dying. And he's sad, rightly so. His family's sad, rightly so. Um, we, w- when you get to that cusp, whether it's uh, health issues, your grandparents uh, losing someone you love, nothing else matters. Life is the thing we hold most important. It doesn't matter our wealth, our accumulations, our power. It doesn't matter what we've achieved in life. It doesn't matter where we live. When you're facing a, a short runway of time, it's our most important holding. Think about the way we speak of a life raft, a life boat, a life preserver, a life line, life's blood, life's span, life's work. We could go on. These things uh, group together what, what has meaning. What does my life mean? And so we're busy with activities and wonderful good things. But when it gets to that end about life, it's the most important thing we hold. And Jesus Christ came to give us life, and he's the light, we might say the one who exposes our need for life and the one who provides that life. Light and darkness are not opposites. It's typically how they're projected. When you talk about light, you have to talk about dark to make sense of each other, but they're not opposites. Light always distinct, uh, d- diminishes and removes darkness, but you can't put enough darkness over a light to extinguish a light. If we cut off all the lights in this room except for these candles, you would see those candles. You can't pour enough darkness on light to extinguish light. One match in a desert on a clear night can be seen north of 10,000 feet in the air. Light always dispels darkness. Darkness cannot quench light. They're not opposites. Light is the one that extinguishes darkness. Light is the one that moves darkness away. When we were in college, I lived in a farmhouse for a, a period of time, and uh, this, I was out in a field with, you know, they, they grew Milo May, a corn crop, and if you ever lived in a farming community or in a remote area, you know exactly where I'm going with this. Critters like to come into the house when it's warm or when they need water, and so if you live in an area that's farmed, you're going to have lots of visitors in your home. And, uh, and my roommates and I would always, it was like, who was going to go into the kitchen first? Because when you turn the light on, uh, it wasn't just the East Texas three-inch roaches that bothered us. It was the rodents. But if you live in an old farmhouse, that's what it means to live in an old farmhouse. And when you turn the light on, they ran for the darkness. I love that picture. Light extinguishes the dark. Light exposes our evil deeds. Light reveals he is the light of the world. He comes to reveal evil. He comes to show darkness. John three nineteen. this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Men prefer darkness. They love darkness. Think of any newscast you've seen in recent months where a criminal is caught on a, let's say, a house camera breaking and entering, and he is probably dressed in dark clothes, black, with a hat pulled down or a hood, because he wants to not be seen. He doesn't want the light turned on. You're not going to commit those kind of crimes in broad daylight. 
you're going to try to hide yourself because evil operates in the darkness. And Jesus says that men love the darkness rather than the light. Darkness shrouds and it protects and light exposes. But the light comes to not merely expose and judge. Light comes to expose and call us to himself. Well, Jesus has always existed. He's eternally existed. Never was a time when Jesus was not. Jesus is the eternal creator. Never was a thing that he did not create. And then in John's gospel, we move into the historical witness about this. How do we believe this? How do we know this is true? And John's going to explain what he's writing down for us to understand. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, John, the gospel writer, does not use the description John the Baptist. Interesting. He just talks about John. More than likely, to put the emphasis on this verse, verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. The primary reason John the Baptist comes is a witness. He's coming to tell what he's seen, what he's heard, what he knows about the situation. Interesting, and just like our study in the Gospel of Mark, the word sent in verse 6, the man sent from God, is the word apostello. We've been talking about the wordplay between the apostle, the apostoleo, who's been sent. So it's a wordplay, the man sent from John. Just like Moses or an Old Testament prophet, they were sent from God for a reason. Some refer to John as the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet. I like that. He's the last and the old. He's the bookend. He's the forerunner who comes as a voice crying in the wilderness. He comes as a witness. Now, if you've been around the body of Christ very long, um, we, we have Christianese, and sometimes we have a Christian sort of a disease. We don't like our own language. And the words witness and testimony can rub some of us the wrong way. It sounds old school, arcane. And let me absolve you of it. Think, it. think of it in a legal way. What does a witness do? He or she tells what they've seen, what they know, what they've heard. That's all it means. John, the gospel writer, is telling us the Baptist came primarily to be a witness of what he's seen, of what he heard, of what he knows. And that's his testimony. Um, witnessing or being a person who testified commits a person. You, you can't be uninvolved. We, perhaps you like all these uh, television shows that deal with uh, law and order and cops and whatnot, and no one ever wants to come forward and say, I've seen that guy, I've seen that woman, I know that person, because they don't want to get involved. Because once you're involved, you're going to have enemies. You're going to have people who are on the other side of the issue who are going to attack you because you chose to take a stand about what you saw what you know, what you believe to be true. So we prefer to be neutral as opposed to be involved. Gabriel Marcel writes it this way, to be a witness is to act as a guarantor. Every testimony is based on a commitment. And to be incapable of committing oneself is to be incapable of bearing witness. This is indeed the reason for a preliminary oath administered in a law court, where a person puts their hand on a Bible and swears. By taking the oath, I bind myself. I give up the possibility of withdrawing myself from what I will say. That's a witness. Or 
as J.H. Oldham writes it, unless you commit yourself, unless you stake everything on the truth of what you say, you cannot be a witness. So what's the line we always say? Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Think about the language that developed to get to that place. I'm going to tell a little truth. Now I want you to the whole truth. I'm going to tell the truth. Instant. No, tell nothing but the truth. Tell only the truth. So a witness is a person who tells what they've seen, what they've heard, what they know to be true. John's primary purpose is to be a witness of this Christ. Verse 7 continues that purpose that all might believe. He's going to be a witness. He's going to tell what he's seen and heard and known so other people will hear it and believe the story. And that's the record of the Gospel of John. Now, as great as John was, he was not the light. John, the Gospel writer, says that. He's not the light. He's the one who came before. But if you look at history, when you go to Israel, we talk about the Essene community some, and you'll see areas where they believe these followers of John the Baptist continued. They didn't follow Jesus. They followed the Baptist. In fact, even fast forward in Paul's time in Ephesus, he encounters men who believed in the Baptist but didn't believe in Jesus. The Baptist came to announce Jesus, but they glommed on to the Baptist, not Jesus. And if that's not enough, there's a group of people today, probably less than thousands, there used to be several thousands outside of Baghdad and Iraq, that were the Mandeans, and they are disciples of John, not Jesus. And when the war broke out, many of them migrated to the United States, and there's pockets of them around the United States who hold to the, the teaching of the Baptist ironic when the gospel writer says he came to be a witness he came to point to him he was to not the light he backs away he decreases while jesus increases but people get stuck even today verse 9 there was true light which coming into the world enlightens every man he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him laying a foundation of light and life in john chapter 1 so we have this true light. True means genuine, authentic, and real. I don't know if it's still accurate today, but there was a time when you went to the grocery store to buy honey, it had to say 100% pure honey. Because 100% honey or pure honey meant it was diluted with corn syrup. So if you want real honey out of a comb that hasn't been, no additives, it has to be 100% pure honey. Not sure if that's still an accurate description, but it was at a time because we would always look at the labels to make sure there was this big diluting of honey scam going around. Uh, if you want real, genuine, authentic honey, you want 100% pure honey. Well, this is the true light. Not a deceptive light. This true light embodies everything that Christ says and does. And it is the life that he offers to any who come to him. We read about true worshipers in the Gospel of John the true bread, the true vine, and the true God. And he is the true Messiah. Now, enlightens every man doesn't mean all people are going to come to Christ. It's back to turning on the light switch in that kitchen, in that farmhouse I used to live in. It exposes all the deeds of the darkness. It doesn't mean everyone's going to embrace it. It means they're going to be exposed to it. And there's two responses to exposure. Run for cover, love the darkness, or come to the light and realize I'm a sinful person in need of help. I'm a hurting person in need of help. I'm a person who knows I'm a sinner and I want a solution to that problem. And Christ is the only one who offers that solution. The light has come into the world. The true light has come. Well, 
Verse 11 is in some ways a tragic verse. He came to his own, and those were his own, did not receive him. Um, the Logos incarnate came to his own people, his own property, his own nation, the Jew, and they didn't receive him. They didn't welcome him. Think of a college student going off to college for a year or two and coming home and saying, we don't want you here. The reception was not welcoming. This is nothing new. 700 years prior, Isaiah penned, who has believed our message? In chapter 66, he wrote, I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way which is not good, following their own thoughts. What, what, interesting indictment. People that follow what they think. Boy, if you said that today out in the public square, you'd be vilified. You're going to believe what you think? You're an idiot. That's what Isaiah is saying. Don't believe what you think. Who walk in a way which is not good, following their own thoughts. He continues, a people who continually provoke me to my face. And Jeremiah picked up a scroll and scratched out, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day. So from your captivity all the way to today, I have sent you my servants, the prophets, daily rising and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or inclined their ear, but they stiffened their neck and they did more evil than their fathers. This rejection is nothing new. The light has come into the world from the beginning of creation, from the encounter with Adam and the woman in the garden to the covenant with Abraham, through the Mosaic law, through all the different prophets, through the divided kingdoms, north and south, the divided tribes, the civil wars, all the history of Israel to this very day, the lights come into the world and people don't believe it. They stiffen their necks. They believe their own thoughts. It's a grim rejection. But in verse 12, but as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Three observations on three words. Gave, right, and children. He gave them the right. You can't earn this. You're given this. The right. Think of it as a membership. Some of your Bibles might use the word power there. The right of membership into God's family. If you're part of a country club, if you grew up in the world where your parents were, they were members, somebody put down a pretty large amount of money for you to be a member. All that membership does is let you in the door. If you want to eat or play golf or use the uh, 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 the gym there or have an event there, you have to pay more for it. The membership just gets you in the door. He gave you the right. So think about that. Someone just gave you a membership to the country club, as it were, to be children. You see, we're all illegitimate throwaway people. And he gives us, we didn't earn it, the right, the membership, to be his children. A diminutive term that John uses in the Gospels and his three letters he loves the word. He doesn't call us sons and daughters. He calls us children. It's a very endearing term that God calls us his children. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Three negatives. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, and not of the will of man. Let's talk about these very briefly. Not of blood. Natural descent. Some of you were Downton Abbey fans. You, you know, drank, you couldn't wait till it came out. You binge Downton Abbey, uh, upstairs, downstairs. If you're born upstairs, you're born to royalty. It's your name. 
It's your land. It's your legacy. It's your wealth. And all the intermarrying had to do with keeping that line pure. If you were born, what they call, in servitude, in service, your life was always going to be downstairs. The color palettes were beautiful. Upstairs, above. The royalty, below, they were green and hued and, and muted tones because you were born in servitude. The first thing John says here is you were born not of blood. Doesn't matter what your name was. Doesn't matter who your father's father was. Doesn't matter if you have a crest, not of blood. Secondly, not by the will of flesh, nor by the will of flesh. Um, here we have a picture of a decree. If you go to a state or a, will, a hearing or a testimony of a will, a state's being distributed, and the family contested. Somebody didn't get much or didn't get anything, and they contest the will, and they take it through a process, and the will's overturned because of some circumstances or other testimony. And now the person who got nothing or got very little now gets a lot. That would be a good explanation of this phrase, nor by the will of flesh. You can't just take the law in your own hands and say, I'm going to commandeer this relationship. I'm going to be part of the inheritance. The third one, not by the will of man. And this probably simply means a man or woman having a child. So the three explanations, you become children of God, not because of your namesake, not because of some human decision, and not because how you were born into the world. You become this because he gave you the right. He gave you the right to be a member. He gave you the right to be part of his family. And this introduces the new birth, the supernatural work. S.D. Gordon writes it this way, Aristocrats might boast of their ancient lineage and see themselves important because they belong to a certain family. Gordon writes, I come from a rather old family myself. It runs clear back without a break or slip to Adam in the garden. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a royal lineage that goes not merely back to Adam, but back to the Savior who died for you. Because he gives you the right to be called children of God. So what? This is Christmas. We have lights everywhere. We have a beautiful rendering by David Arms for our set this season with the light of the world because light comes in and it extinguishes darkness. Darkness doesn't extinguish light. We wrap trees in lights. You have, if you're in my house, you will see my wife who's decorated up the banister of the, uh, of the stairway and trees everywhere and little things around the mantle. Lights, lights, lights. And maybe you put them in your yard like other good people do. Um, maybe you like to go drive around neighborhoods and look at Christmas decorations or Christmas lights, whether it's the Griswolds or other ones. You like to look at lights. Nothing wrong with it. It's fine. It's a great festival thing. I'm not mad about it. I'm not against it. As a believer in Jesus Christ, the light came into the world to solve our sin condition. And that's the celebration. Not the date that he was born, because he's always existed. We're commemorating his birth, because unless he was born to die, we would never live. And the Gospel of John wants to remind us from the get-go, Jesus has always existed. Never was a time when the Word was not. Everything created was made by Jesus Christ. And by that lineage of eternally existing and all that was created by him, he says, I created you. And I come to give you life and light. Not some metaphysical cosmology, not some yin and yang, not some uh, uh, George Lucas adaptation of the force, but true light, true life, life found only in Christ. This is the light of the world. You can search world opinions. 
You can think in your own thoughts, as the prophet warned against. You can come to your own conclusions. God has spoken. Whether you believe it or not, that's up to you. Some don't receive him, and they prefer darkness rather than light. He doesn't come to condemn. He comes to solve. He comes to save. He comes to offer you a free gift called eternal life. For believers here, this is a great time of celebration to remember what he's done for us. If you don't know the person and work of Jesus Christ, it is a good time to reflect on the light of the world. He loves you. He cares about you. He knows the smallest detail and the biggest issue in your life right now. And he still loves. He knows all the things you struggle with, all the lies, all the deception, all the good things that you want to count as good. He knows all about you. None of that matters to him. What matters to him is are you rightly related to him? Because he's the light that extinguishes darkness. He has come into the world to give eternal life. Not just life like we view it, that we hold to it dearly, but eternal life that lasts forever. And as we've been saying last few weeks, we're not living in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. We're living in the land of the dying going to the land of the living. And by trusting in Christ, in Christ alone, by putting your faith, by believing in him, that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, and that he came back from the grave, overcoming death and, get, and being alive again, resurrection. Life, death, burial, resurrection. By believing in him, he gives you a free gift called eternal life. He gives it to you. He grants you can't earn it. And you don't need to keep it because he gives it to you. It's the greatest gift ever given. That's the light of the world. And that's our hope and prayer is that you know, that you know, that you know you're rightly related to Jesus Christ. That is the season. Father, we thank you for the light that has come into the world. We thank you for your son that was born to die, that we might live. We thank you for your word that is true and powerful and complex and simple at the same time. A child can embrace it and a scholar can study it. And we can learn more of you as we expose ourselves to who you are on your word, not on our thoughts. Help us to be good students of who you are and to align our lives to following the light of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Have a great week. God bless you.